Acts chapter 13. It's where we are today. Kids, y'all ready? Okay, listen to this scripture. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Can you imagine what that would be like if the whole city would come together to hear the word of God? That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Well, that's what happened where Paul and Barnabas were. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. So all the city came together to hear the word of God because there were a bunch of people excited about hearing God's word. But there were also a lot of people who weren't excited about having God's word preached. So do you know that's the way it is in our life? We should be excited about God's word. We should be excited about obeying God and, and helping others understand they should obey God and they should trust God. In other words, we should be preachers of the gospel. Did you know that it's not just pastors who are preachers of the gospel, but we're all called to preach the gospel the way we live our lives? Even little people, little people and big people, young people and old people. But do you know that when you preach the gospel and when you live the gospel, not everybody's going to agree with you and not everybody's going to be happy for you. In fact, some people will oppose you. Do you know what it means to be opposed means they're going to push against you. They're going to they're going to try to move you a different direction. So, let me ask a question to everyone here, especially the young people. Should we obey God or not obey God? Somebody tell me, obey or not obey? We should obey God. So, should we obey God only when the people around us and our friends want us to? Only when they want us to? What happens when our friends and the people around us don't want us to obey God and they want us to go against God? What should we do? Obey God or not? Obey God. So even when the people around us don't want us to obey God, what should we still do? What if they're really mean to us and call us names and try to hit us? Obey God. That's right. Do you know that's what happened to Paul? Paul and Barnabas, they obeyed God so well that the people in the city got so angry that they made them leave. And they went to another city. And you know what they did in the other city? They obeyed God so well that the people took Paul out and they threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. How would you like for someone to throw rocks at you and bury you under rocks until they thought you were dead? I wouldn't like that. But what if they said, I'm going to throw rocks at you and bury you under these rocks until you're dead unless you agree to disobey God and reject Jesus? What should you do? Take the rocks, take the rocks and obey Jesus? Yes, that's what we should do. Do you know that's what's happening to people in other parts of the world right now? We're not afraid someone's going to come in here and throw rocks at us, right? I'm not. I don't think anyone's going to come through the door and throw rocks at me. But do you know there's other parts of the world where that's happening to people? Where they take people outside of the city and they throw rocks at them until they're buried under rocks and they're dead? Just because they love Jesus. Just because they trust Jesus. So you know what? We have a choice to make every day. Are we going to obey Jesus or are we going to disobey Jesus? Sometimes it's really easy to obey Jesus. Sometimes it's not so easy to obey Jesus. So whether it's easy or whether it's difficult, what should we always do? Obey Jesus. That's right. And when we do that, God's promised a blessing for us. And do you know the blessings of God are not just in this life? They are eternal. That means they never end. They never grow old. They never go away. And that is good news. Okay? So don't forget, no matter what, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, obey Jesus. Because one day, we're not going to answer to our friends. Who are we going to answer to? 
God, that's right. And when you stand before God and you've obeyed Jesus throughout your life, you know what God's going to say? He's going to say, come on in, my good and faithful servant. And that's what we want to hear from God. Amen? All right, let's read the rest of this scripture. Acts chapter 13. I'm actually going to read, um, I'm actually going to read beginning in verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And when Paul and Barnabas grew bold, they said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles or to the nations, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you this, for this account of the preaching of the gospel Thank you for this account of faithfulness from your disciples. And we ask, God, that you would help us by your grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit to be faithful just as Paul and Barnabas were faithful. To not be afraid of men, but to fear God and to obey God no matter the cost. Father, we ask that you would empower your church in this day, in this hour, to be your witness in this dark world that we live in, that men would have the hope of Jesus and see the light and come to faith and come to salvation. Father, we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I'm going to focus today on really two verses from this section of Scripture that I read. So we see in these verses, for instance, in verse 42, that there was an intense desire to hear God's word. And then in verse 44, it says, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. And when the word of God was presented and the Jews in that city saw all the Gentiles come together to hear the gospel preached, they became envious they were filled with envy, the Bible says, and they rejected the gospel simply because of other people they saw embracing it. Kind of like, if you're for it, I'm going to be against it. Kind of sounds familiar to our culture today, doesn't it? Then in verse 46, we see Paul and Barnabas turn to the Gentiles, and this is what they said. If you guys reject God, if you reject the gospel, that's fine. We were commanded to take it to you first, but we'll just turn to the Gentiles. We'll take it to the nations. And that is exactly what they did. And then in verse 48, it says, As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. It says the Gentiles heard the word of God, glorified the word of God, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. And then, again, the Jews raised up persecution. They rallied those who were opposed to the gospel. 
to the point that they expelled Paul and Barnabas out, but they just went to a different community. It says they shook the dust off their feet, which is exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do when those reject you and they will not receive your gospel. Just shake the dust off your feet and move on. And it says in verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I want to focus really on two verses out of this. Verse 44, that says, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. I want to focus on this in the context that I just read. And I want to focus also in verse 48, where it says, As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Would that be awesome if we saw that begin to happen in America? In all of our cities, in our own city? Do you know that it's happened in America before? It's called the Great Awakening. This is, this is one of the things they don't teach in history anymore. Because it's not relevant. The first awakening began in the 1730s. And what we call the Great Awakening was really the second awakening, but they all kind of run together. In the 1730s, what we call the first awakening or the beginning of the Great Awakening began to take place. And that led into what we call the Great Awakening. And it was men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield who came to America and they began to preach the gospel. And they preached the gospel in all of its power, in all of its potency. And they and other men like them feared God and they preached the fear of God to men. And they were fearless before their hearers. They were fearless before the church because just like today, not all the church agreed with what was going on. There were those who believed that these guys who rode around on horses and were itinerant preachers were, was almost heretical. It was improper. It was out of order. Even by that time, we have the same sin that we see today in the church taking place in the church back then. Because sin remains the same. The sinfulness of man is passed on from generation to generation to generation because we're born in sin. We're born totally depraved. The things that tempt us today have always tempted sinful man. The things we're tempted to drift away and into today are the same things we're tempted to drift away to and, and into back in that day. But these men, like Whitfield and Edwards, preached a gospel fearlessly, and they refused to allow the powers that be to quiet them. The Great Awakening lasted from the middle of the 18th century to the middle of the 19th century, almost 100 years. These awakenings were critical in shaping the minds of our founding fathers and the very founding of this nation upon biblical principles and truth. It was the great awakening, that movement, that, that began the movement to end slavery in America. That's where that movement here was birthed. It was birthed out of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ was the message of the great awakening, and it must be the message of any awakening that we will experience in our day. There is no true awakening apart from the gospel of Christ, for the gospel alone is the power of God to salvation. We must not think that an awakening will not happen again. We can't think that way. We can't live that way. We can't believe that way. We can't conduct ourselves that way. We have to live in such a way that we believe that it will happen again. And we must work and pray to that end. Even if we don't see it in our lifetime. Because 
what we call the Great Awakening in America that took place between the, the middle of the 18th century to the middle of the 19th century didn't just happen all of a sudden. It was the product of planting and watering for generations and centuries and that finally bloomed into what we read about in our history called the Great Awakening which produced the greatest nation on earth that has brought the gospel to the utter ends of this earth, sent missionaries and money and things so that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. That is a product of God's faithfulness. That is a product of faithful men and faithful women who prayed and worked beyond their own lives, beyond their own generations, believing and knowing that God would do this kind of work because of their faithfulness. We have to be the same kind of people today. Whether we see it in our day or not, we cannot give up the fight. We cannot turn back. We cannot bow to the opposition. We cannot do that. If we love our children, if we love our grandchildren, if we love their children and their children's children, then we must be faithful and remain faithful, even if it cost us our life. And it could, because it has cost countless believers their lives throughout the centuries. The gospel will wake us that's what it is to do, but it will not make us woke. There is much talk in the church today about being woke, which is a term that means we have finally come to acknowledge our sin of social injustice, of social intolerance, the sin of a lack of diversity, whether we know it or not. Being woke is kind of like being convicted of sin I did not know I was guilty of. But I'm just going to go with it because that's what everyone says I should do. The Bible never talks about being woke, but it does talk about being awake. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 5.14. Therefore he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. It is not the woke culture giving us light. It is Christ waking us and raising us from the dead who gives us light. There is a big difference, and we need to know what that difference is. The church should be able to tell that difference and preach accordingly. Paul and the other disciples of Jesus did in their day, and we should in our own. The gospel wakes us from death. And when the power of the gospel saves us, we will not wonder if we are in sin. We won't wonder what sin is, how it should be defined, and what is categorized as sin and not sin. When the gospel wakes us, we will know our sin. And we will cry out to Jesus to save us from our sin. The gospel wakes us from death and delivers us from sin. There is no amount of cultural diversity. There is no amount of social justice engineering that can deliver us and save us from sin. Only Jesus can save us. Only Christ can wake us. Only Christ can raise us and give us light. And to believe any other thing, to put our hope in anyone or anything else, is sin. It is the gospel, not the culture, we should give attention to. That does not mean we should ignore the culture. That would be irresponsible. We should understand what's happening in our culture so that we can spiritually discern what is happening around us and how we should pray and how we should work accordingly. We must realize it is not an understanding of the culture that will empower the church to save men, but it is the gospel and the gospel alone that is the power of God to salvation. The gospel, the gospel we preach in the context of the culture is important. And that's what we do. We preach the gospel in the context of the culture, but we never preach the gospel in submission to the culture. The gospel should never change. The gospel should change the culture. 
The culture should never change the gospel. And when the gospel is changed by the culture, it stops being the gospel. It's not the gospel anymore. It's another. This is what has happened in our day. This is what has happened in our churches. We have allowed the culture to change the gospel. Most people today would place the responsibility of the rejection of God and the church with the church. And you know what? They would be right. Except most of the time for the wrong reasons. Every when you when you go out and you talk to people, if you're if you're talking to people who aren't aren't saved, if you're out in the world and you're having conversations of any depth with people, you'll hear this a lot. If they find out you're a pastor, they find out you're a faithful church member, you'll hear people say something like, well, you know, I just, I just don't go to church anymore because the church is filled with hypocrites. The church has driven me away. You know, and I think that's what the problem is in the culture. I think the church has become so irrelevant. The church has become so narrow-minded, so focused on antiquated things. No wonder nobody wants to go to church. I mean, this is, this is what the world believes. And what they're really saying is the reason nobody wants to go to church and the reason nobody re wants to believe in God, the reason people reject the church and reject God is because of the church. And, and they're right, but for the wrong reason. Even many church leaders have fallen prey to this wrong way of thinking. This is the belief that we have failed to make church relevant to people today because we have failed to keep current with the culture. The truth is that the gospel is always relevant and always current. It does not lose its relevance with the advancement of time or the advancement of the culture. The gospel is the standard, not the culture. The culture is not the standard. This is what we've done today. We said the culture is the standard. Now, everyone has to conform to the culture because that's our standard. But the scripture is very clear. The culture is not the standard. God is the standard. His truth is the standard. His word is the standard. The gospel is the standard. Not the culture. The gospel does not follow man's cultural evolution or devolution. You know what devolution is? It's the degrading. Evolution, we understand that. Devolution is the opposite of that. And this is what our culture does. We think our culture is evolving. No, our culture is devolving. And our gospel doesn't follow the evolution or devolution of the culture. The gospel is always relevant because sin is always relevant. And salvation is always relevant. The gospel is relevant because mankind will always need a savior. It's not the place of the church to make God acceptable to man. It is the place of the church to preach the gospel, in which in turn reveals man's need to become acceptable to God, along with the means to be accepted by him. So the gospel doesn't just point out the problem. The gospel points out the problem and provides the solution. Jesus is the solution to the problem. But if we don't know we need Jesus, then why would we look to him? Why would we trust in him? While much of the modern church is trying to find creative ways to draw men through her doors, she continues to reject God's tried and true way. Preach the gospel and the authority of Jesus. We are to preach it true and preach it hot. We are to daily live it the same way, true and hot, with our words and deeds marinated in the love of God and seasoned with salt. If the church is fulfilling her responsibility, there will be enough evidence in our life to pronounce us guilty of being disciples of Jesus beyond any reasonable doubt. And if that's not the case, then we better get on our knees and cry out to God and ask Him to do a work in us we are commanded by Jesus to go and make disciples, beginning with ourselves, 
with our family and those closest to us. You say, well, pastor, how do I do that? Center your life in Christ. Make all things in your life revolve around him. Don't make the things in your life, don't make Christ revolve around the things in your life. Make Christ the center and make everything in your life revolve around him. Nothing in our life should be outside of the influence of Christ. Everything in our life should be informed by his truth and his word. We are commanded to fear God and to not fear man. We are commanded to obey God and not the whims of godless men. That means we will respect and obey the God-ordained authorities. And God has ordained authority. God has put in place governments and laws and those things that we should live under and obey. They're ordained by God. And we respect those authorities and we obey those authorities until those authorities command us to disrespect and disobey the God who ordained them. For instance, California. Right now, they have made it illegal to even have church in California. This came down from the supreme leader of California, the governor. Under penalty of law, you gather in California, they're going to come get you. They're going to shut you down. So we do, take, do we take Romans, Paul's words from Romans, and do we say, well, the government said to do it. We can't worship God. Or do we say, sorry, governor. The Bible tells us to worship God. The Bible tells us to not forsake assembling together. Hebrews 10 doesn't say, do not forsake assembling together unless COVID-19 becomes a pandemic in your world. It doesn't say that. Because what the scripture implies is that God stands above COVID-19. God knows all about COVID-19. He allowed COVID-19. He knows exactly what's going on. And when the government says, don't assemble to worship, God also knows who's going to obey and who's not going to obey. Because he's kind of like Santa Claus. He's watching. He's making a list and checking it twice. And we have a choice to make. Are we going to obey the government? And this is what Christians are saying. Well, you know, the Bible says obey the government. So we have to do what the governor says. No. You obey the government until the government tells you to disobey God. And the moment the government tells you to disobey God, you say, bye Felicia. That's what you say to the governor. That's what you say. You say, well, well what if they come and get you? Well, they came and got Paul and Barnabas. They came and got Jesus. We could go on and list thousands upon thousands of more they came and got because they wouldn't obey the government. Why do we think we are any different? We're not. We should not have less courage than those who have gone before us had. We should have equal or more courage so that those who come after us will be able to look back at our lives and say, they were courageous. They stood up to the powers that be. They did not bow to Caesar. They bowed only to the Lord. What do you want your children and your grandchildren to see? What do we want the generations coming after us to see? A weak church who bowed to Caesar because she was too afraid to oppose him? That's not going to bring an awakening to America, I promise you. I believe there will be an awakening come to America, but that ain't going to bring it. That is not going to bring it. The gospel reveals our need for a Savior. The gospel reveals our sinful and rebellious heart and our need for a Savior. And if we cannot see our sin, we will not see the Savior. True, Jesus is a friend of mine if he calls me friend. But if he's not first the Lord and Savior who alone can save me from my sin or cast me headlong into hell, then he is not the Jesus of the Bible. If the church today 
In the church today, many have a relationship with the Lord the same way many parents do with their children. A lot of parents want, are more concerned about being their child's friend than being a parent. We think Jesus is unwilling, if not incapable, to tell his children no and to discipline them and correct them with the rod of correction. We have people who go to church today. We have pastors who preach in churches today who don't believe in a Jesus that will correct his children. Who don't believe in a Jesus who will judge this world. Who don't believe in a Jesus that hates sin so much he's willing to allow judgment to come to a nation. In other words, there is a lot of people sitting in churches today who do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. They have created in their own imaginations another Jesus and another gospel. And I'll just tell you right now, you will never be able to say, your pastor didn't tell you so when you stand before God, because I've told you so. And I will keep telling you so. And we will all keep telling you so. Because I love you that much. If I do not believe I have a sin problem, I will not believe in my need for a Savior. And you look at the, what the world has done today. We continue to remove item after item after item from the list of sinful behaviors and sinful lifestyles and sinful actions. If I believe man's basic problem is not sin, but his environment, I don't need God. If I believe it is a man's education, his cultural, his societal evolution, if I believe that all men are inherently good, then all we simply need to do is nurture and develop that good in the right environment, mold it and shape it, and we're going to all be fine. And if that's true, then I don't need God. I just need man to do better. And that's where our culture and much of the church is right now. We just need man to do better. We need humanity to do better. This is humanism. It's really paganism. Ultimately... It would be paganism if humanists believed in a God, but since humanists don't believe in a God, they can't call it paganism because paganism implies in the belief of false God. Humanism puts man at the top of the totem pole. He is God. But we know that all humanism is is paganism with man put up there as the idol we're all worshiping. Ultimately, I am my own savior. Under this pervasive philosophy, there is no such thing as sin. Sin is strictly, get this, this is true. Now think about this. The reason the world doesn't believe in sin is because sin is inherently, it's a religious concept rooted in superstition and the mythical belief in God. The culture we're dealing with today doesn't believe in sin because they don't believe in God. We don't have a sin problem, we just, we just need to do better. Do you know that people mistakenly believe that Buddhism is a religion? Do you know Buddhism is not a religion? Do you know that Buddha did not believe in God? Buddha was just a man who lived in China and saw the degradation of his culture and decided there's a better way to live. And he created a system of living that would help men live better. It had nothing to do with a God. Buddha didn't believe in God. This was just about self-improvement. That's what Buddhism is. That's why I always say Buddhists believe everything and nothing all at the same time. If you're a Buddhist, you can believe in God if you want to. No problem there if that helps you become a better person. If you don't believe in God, that's okay too. But follow the, the guidelines laid out here to be a better person. This is why so many people who reject God and reject the belief in a God will accept Buddhism because Buddhism doesn't, manage you believe, uh, doesn't demand that you believe in a God. In fact, it has nothing to do with God. It's all about humanism when it comes right down to it.
Sin is strictly, therefore, a religious concept rooted in superstition and the mythical belief in a God. This is why today we can define sin or redefine sin at will because there's really no such thing as sin. It's just what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. So a thousand years ago, this was not acceptable, but we have spiritually and culturally evolved, and today this is acceptable. The standard is... If it feels right to you, do it, but do no harm to another. That is at best a floating standard. We each get to define for ourselves what we consider harmful, but we cannot enforce that standard on any other person because that, that would be harmful to the other person. The collective will determine what standards apply and how they will be enforced. What if we disagree with the collective? Well, then the collective cancels you. Well, that's exactly what happens. Too bad the collective sets the standard until the standard changes with the changing will of the collective. Who's the collective, you might ask? Who's ultimately in charge, you might wonder? Well, the answer is all who agree with the collective thought and belief that is ever-changing and ever-evolving into a higher consciousness that includes all people in all things to the exclusion of none. This includes everyone. There is no one excluded. We tolerate everyone. We include everyone. Except for those who will not comply with the belief of the collective. Those, those unbelievers cannot be tolerated for the good of the collective. They must be expelled. We will not tolerate the intolerance of those who will not submit to the beliefs of the collective. But we don't believe in God. This isn't about faith. This isn't about belief. This is just about creating an environment where all humans can thrive. And if humans don't want to do that, they don't want to believe that, then we'll just exclude those humans. Well, that's kind of what Hitler did when he kid, killed tens of millions. We say six million Jews, but he didn't just kill Jews. He killed all kinds of people. Hitler killed over 10 million people in a very short period of time. That's what Stalin did. He killed over 30 million people who didn't agree with the collective. It's what Mao did. Some people believe Mao may have killed as many as 150 million people. But let's say that's a little excessive. Let's just say he only killed 50 to 70 million people. Because we don't want to overestimate the numbers. And he killed them because they did not agree with the collective. All are accepted. All are tolerated except those unbelievers. Those unbelievers who will not comply with the belief of the collective, those will not be tolerated. Guess what? Welcome to today. This is the America we live in. They're just not herding us to camps and killing us yet. Do you think that's an impossibility? You think that could never happen? You think we're too evolved? You think we're too, too good for that? Tell that to all the Jews who were murdered in Nazi Germany. Tell that to all the Russians and all the other ethnic groups that were murdered by Stalin. Tell that to all the Chinese that were murdered by Mao. Tell that to all the Cambodians that were murdered by the Khmer Rouge. We could go through history and talk about the people groups that have been murdered and exterminated because they would not comply with the collective. And we want to think we're too advanced for that. Have you seen what's happening in Portland, those peaceful protests? I know if you're not paying attention, you'd think there's just a bunch of peaceful people out there protesting in Portland and Seattle and Chicago and in all these other places. Just peaceful protests. Moms even out there with their kids, walking, holding hands. Little kids holding signs up, blessing the police. Have you seen it? 
painted on the side of the government buildings, Moms for Dead Cops. Isn't that nice? Nice moms out there with their children, protecting their children, who just want to peacefully protest. This is what the propaganda machine wants us to believe. We better have some spiritual discernment that helps us understand and know there's a truth behind the lie, above the lie. What do we do, you might ask? Well, the answer is really simple, and you're probably tired of hearing it. We preach the gospel is what we do. Acts 13, 48. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the, the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You know what happens when you believe the gospel? You know what happens when you're born again? Your heart is changed. And when your heart is changed, you know what else can be changed? Your mind can be changed. And you know what happens when your heart and your mind is changed? You change. And you're no longer the person you were before, doing the things you did before, thinking the things you thought before. Now, instead of opposing God, you are submitted to God, walking in obedience to God. Even if it's not perfectly, and it's not for any of us, what is the desire of your heart? Is your heart's desire for God and for obedience, or is it opposed to God? Listen, we're living in a culture today where it doesn't take much to discern who's for God and who's against God. You just listen to what people say, or you can just watch what's happening on the news, and you're going to know real quick who's for God and who's not for God. And, and don't listen to what comes out of their mouth because they'll lie to you. You watch how they live their lives. This is what Jesus said. You'll know them by their fruits. They'll tell you all day long, I'm an apple tree, I'm an apple tree, I'm an apple tree. It's like, well, why do I get, keep, stuck, getting, keep stuck? Why do I keep getting stuck by these thorns and thistles? I didn't know apple trees had thorns and thistles. Oh, yeah, I'm an apple tree. Well, where's the fruit? Ah, uh, don't worry about that. Just believe what I say. We better be smarter than that. We better not listen to what just people say. We better watch what their lives are showing. And those people out there doing the things that they're doing, they can call themselves Christian all day long. The churches that are supporting that, encouraging that, can call themselves of God all day long. But I'm going to tell you right now, for you and everyone else out there who might be listening, it's not of God. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And we better smarten up real quick. The gospel was preached, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What happened as a result of the preaching of the gospel is perfectly consistent with what Jesus teaches us about how a person comes to be saved. Listen to the words of Jesus, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 6, 65. And he said, therefore I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. This is what Luke is referring to in these verses that recount the result of the gospel being preached by Paul and Barnabas. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. We preach the gospel trusting its power and its providence and the providence of God. Not all will be saved, but none will be saved apart from the gospel. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Many of them believed, accepting Christ as Savior. They were those who were appointed for eternal life. In this phrase, we encounter the same balance between human will and divine providence that's found throughout the book of Acts, and throughout the scripture. On their part, these Gentiles took an active role in believing and committing themselves to Christ, but it was in response to God's Spirit moving in them, convicting them, appointing them for life. And what we know is that all salvation 
is by grace, by the grace of God. Our place, our responsibility, and our obedience is in preaching the gospel. It's not our place to know or to determine who or how many will be saved. It is our place to preach the gospel. We are not the saviors. We are the messengers of the Savior. We carry his message. We proclaim his message. And he will save as many as have been appointed to eternal life. If we faithfully preach and live the gospel... Men will be saved. That's what we need to know. That's what we need to remember. If we faithfully live and we faithfully preach the gospel, no matter the cost, men will be saved. What we are failing to do today is to obey Jesus. We are commanded to preach the gospel, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commands. We are bowing literally to the God called culture. Social justice, diversity, and any other godless name from the pit of hell Satan is able to apply to deceive men. As disciples of Jesus, we bow only to the true and living God. As disciples of Jesus, we are not to fear what man can do to us. We are to fear only God and proclaim the wisdom and the understanding that come from the fear of the Lord. We are not to be rebellious, but an obedient people. And our obedience should be seen throughout our life, but it is founded, listen church, and it is bounded by our obedience to God. In other words, the boundaries of our obedience are determined by God, not man. The allegiance of our worship is to God. It is not to man. We come each week to this table. And when we come to this table, it should remind us of this reality. When we come to this table to thank God for Jesus Christ, the body that was given up for us, the blood that was poured out for us, it should remind us who our allegiance is to. It should remind us who our worship belongs to. It should remind us who our obedience belongs to. And that it is the grace of God that has given us the ability to even know that. It is the grace of God that has given us the ability, the power, the will to obey Him. The desire to obey Him. And if you don't have a desire and a will to obey God then you need to get on your knees and you need to cry out to God that he would save you. In case you haven't noticed, we are living in a day and a time where our worship of God is not just something we add to our life to make our life better. If we don't come to understand this willingly as we read and study the scripture and discern what's happening around us, we'll come to it unwillingly when our life is on the line and we're given the choice to reject Christ and keep your life or obey Christ and I'll take your life. And if you think that day can't come to this country, you're deceived. And you might say, well, it's never going to happen in my day. And that may be true. But I want you to look around these little babies in this room here. How many of these little children are going to live in America, in an America where worshiping Jesus could be something that would cost them maybe even their life? We would not be the first country to go there. And at the very least, they're going to live in America barring a supernatural move of God, barring another great awakening or a reformation. They're going to live in an America that is even more difficult to worship God in, obey God in, than we can imagine today. So what we do today matters. The choices we make today matter. The stand we take today matters. The opposition we're willing to face matters. It matters.
And we may stand and we may fall under the weight of the culture, not because we gave up, because it overwhelmed us. But at least we'll know we stood until we couldn't stand anymore. We stood until there wasn't breath in our bodies. We, we talked and we preached and we lived it until we couldn't anymore. Not by choice. This is the reality of where we live today. This is serious. And I don't want to be a downer, but we live, we live in a pretty, we live in a nation that's trending downward in many ways. But you know what? There's hope. There's hope in Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus is still victorious. Because Jesus is still the Savior. Because Jesus is still the only hope we have. And if we'll turn to Jesus, he has made us great and precious promises that he will hear us and he will heal our land. And we can't do anything else about the rest of the church, but we can do something about this church. We can't control what anybody else does, but you can control what you do. You can choose what you're going to do. You can choose how you're going to repent. You can choose how you're going to pray. You can choose how you're going to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and trust that God will exalt you. And trust that God will heal our nation. It's got to start right here. Don't let it end here. But let it start here with you. Amen. Let's get ready and come to the table. As you trust Jesus, come to this table. and Thank him for the victory that he has given us in him. And know that that victory applies today. Let us all stand. We have victory in Jesus. Jesus has overcome. He is victorious, but we will always face opposition to the gospel till Jesus comes and puts his last enemy under his feet, which is death. We must not be intimidated by that opposition. And that's exactly what they want to do. That's exactly what the cancel culture is about. It's about intimidation. It's about manipulation. We must not be intimidated by opposition, by persecution, or even death. God has prevailed. Jesus has defeated sin and death and has appointed us to eternal life by grace through faith in him. That is the message. That is the hope we have in Jesus. We must live it. We must preach it. We must take it to this world. We must do it courageously, and we must do it with joy. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. And in the midst of everything that's happening, don't forget joy. Without his joy, we have no strength. So look up. Jesus has conquered. We win. No matter what happens, we have already won. Amen.